From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Air travel has come roaring back from the pandemic, and Denver International Airport continues its sometimes frustrating expansion. It hopes new gates will bring more passengers who never actually step outside. We love connecting passengers. They cost us very little. They don't put wear and tear on pinion. They land, they spend money, they take off. DIA's longtime CEO, Kim Day. In her 13 years on the job, she's seen smooth skies and turbulence. We'll also hear about her likely successor. Can he get those big projects done faster? And what role does the Secretary of Energy see for Colorado in the Biden administration's pushed transition to renewable power? Colorado has got amazing resources, both wind and solar. And Colorado also has the ability to be a pilot state for managing carbon. It has been an extraordinary year for CPR News, providing news coverage important to all Coloradans. Hi, I'm Stuart Vanderwilt, president of CPR. Your support has fueled and inspired our news team, recently recognized with more than two dozen local, regional, and national awards, including eight regional Edward R. Murrow Awards and a National Press Foundation Award for mental health reporting. These accomplishments were made possible by your support. You inspire us every day. Thank you. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Avery Lill. Denver International Airport was busy over the holiday weekend. Final passenger numbers come out later this week, and DIA may beat the 4th of July before the pandemic. For half the airport's existence, one woman has led it, Kim Day. After 13 years, several downturns, and some major expansion, she's stepping down. Day actually thought she would leave sooner because of a breast cancer diagnosis, but she hung on to help DIA navigate COVID-19. CPR's Ryan Warner met her in the terminal. A terminal that seems perennially under construction. It's currently cut in half as a result. We'll get to that in a moment. First, looking down on a steady stream of passengers filing through security, Kim Day tells me she didn't expect passenger traffic to recover so quickly from the doldrums of the pandemic. I'm surprised how fast it happened. We knew we would come back, but I certainly didn't expect it by the 4th of July. Is that safe? Do you have concerns about people's health gathering like this and scattering off all over the world? Well, as you know, the federal government still requires masks in airports and on airplanes, so that keeps us safe. And we're still advocating for social distancing. But the airport, airplanes have never been as clean. And I think everybody's taking a little more precaution personally. So, yes, I think it's very safe. During your tenure, passenger traffic has grown, save for the blip of the pandemic. So has service. More than 40 new routes in your time, 11 new airlines, a hotel opened on the other side of this terminal, a train station. Right now, though, construction seems to define this space. How is the Great Hall project renovating what's beneath the white tented roof? How's that coming along? It's going great. Phase one uh, will finish at the end of this year, and it is on time and 25 million under budget right now. Phase two will take us through the next couple of years. That will actually bring security up here to level six. And I know it's an inconvenience for passengers, but once phase one is done, the center of the terminal opens back up, and that will make life much, much easier for the traveling public. It's been a kind of bifurcated terminal for a while now. 
it has. And it's awkward to have to go outside or go downstairs to get around the middle. So we're excited to have that open later this year. Now, our transportation reporter, Nathaniel Miner, he says the project's two years behind schedule and that in order to be in line with the original budget, you've had to leave some stuff out. So help square that for me. Originally, this would have been done by now, no? Well, I think the question is, could the development team that we terminated have done what they said they could do? And the answer is clearly no. They overestimated what they could do in a short period of time. They were actually planning to do things like shut down the train from the terminal to the concourses for a period of time, which we could not have lived with. And they never could have built this for 770. 770 million. Remember, that was a $1.8 billion project over 30 years. And so they were basically spreading the construction costs out over the 30 years. When we took the project back, we had a construction firm that said it would be about a billion four to do everything that Ferrovial said they could do. That was the firm that you severed ties with. Right. What we said to the mayor is, look, we had said we could deliver a 770 project to you, and we will. And it'll have to be reduced scope because we know that the whole thing is $1.4 billion and we can't pull rabbits out of the hat. So we said to the mayor, mayor, we will do the best scope we can for 770, and that is the phase one and the phase two. And that will come in on time and on budget. Now, this might all seem very processy and projecty for a traveler. What does it mean for the traveling experience at an airport that's now, what, 20-something years old? 26 years old. Well, phase one and phase two alone will make your passenger screening experience much better. You will not wait with hundreds of other people. You will be assigned to a small waiting area. It is much more efficient for TSA. We're updating the old systems, the 26-year-old systems in this building. So we're preparing the airport for the future. We're adding capacity to match the capacity we're adding out on the gates. And we're making a better experience for our passengers and for TSA. I'm glad you mentioned the gates. By next year, almost 40 new gates, right, will open at DIA. They were essentially being finished during the pandemic, uh, which might seem to an outsider like a fool's errand, building gates at a time of slow travel. Are they spoken for, those gates? Every one of them is pre-leased. So at the end, Southwest will be a total of 40 gates here in Denver, and United will be a total of 90 gates. We are adding essentially a mid-size airport to DIN right now, 30% increase in our capacity, and every one of them is leased, and the airlines are chomping at the bit to use them as soon as we can turn them over. In fact, we're going to turn them over not as one big group, but as fast as we can bring individual gates online, we will turn them over. All right, why don't we escape the din of security and the overhead announcements and continue the conversation, Kim? Sounds good. Denver's Mayor Michael Hancock has nominated former RTD chief Phil Washington to succeed you. Washington told Nathaniel Miner that speeding up the construction projects here would be at the top of his list. My initial priorities is to get all of that construction done as much as I can get done, and to accelerate that. I think there's ways to accelerate the construction projects that are out there. I wonder what you make of that from someone who, at least for now, is on the outside looking in. Look, I wish Phil all the best. He is a smart guy, and there's no question that he can get things done. So if he's got 
can bring some new ideas and some ways to accelerate construction, everyone would benefit. The airport would benefit, passengers would benefit, the community would benefit. So I hope he can do it. Would you be surprised if he can? That is to say, if he actually finds ways of speeding things up? No, I I don't think I'd be surprised. I would be delighted. I want to hearken back to a few airport trends that you have mentioned to me over the years. One is you said that older, especially coastal airports, are running out of space and that DIA would benefit by becoming more of a hub. Has that happened? Absolutely. In fact, during the pandemic, we stayed about 10 points above the national average in recovery, largely because we're a domestic hub. And what we saw were airlines like Southwest and United stop some point-to-point service and instead connect those passengers to Denver. So our connecting traffic grew significantly. And as we bring these 39 gates online, that's a 30% capacity increase. And our local market is not going to increase 30% in the next two years. So that's going to be filled by connecting passengers. You're saying, differently put, that a lot more people are flying through Denver than leaving from or flying to Denver. Absolutely. And let me just tell you, we love connecting passengers. They cost us very little. They don't put wear and tear on Pena. They're not here in the terminal. You know, we have to accommodate them. They land, they spend money, they take off. Those are the perfect passengers. And those planes, I mean, there are fees associated with their landings and takeoffs, right? Exactly. Right. Landed weight. So, yeah, we benefit from that. And look, growth means jobs. As the hotel and train station were coming along, uh, you expressed to me hope that DIA would become a destination for people who weren't traveling or picking someone up. I have to say, I'm not sure I've ever met anyone who goes to the airport just to go to the airport. Has that happened? Do you have any evidence it's happening? It's, you know, when all of this is done, when we have a great meeting and greeting area here that looks like Denver Union Station, right, a place you want to be and sit and have a drink and shop a little bit, that's what we're envisioning this south module level five to be, I think people will do it. And I am hoping we get back to the day where people take their kids out to the airport to see passengers take off and land. I'm hoping we get to the point where TSA will let you go through security and go meet Uncle Fred when he arrives again. It's going to be a different place in the future, I think. A famous Spanish architect named Santiago Calatrava expressed the same desire at DIA uh, that it become a destination for more than just travelers. And he expressed this when he designed the airport hotel and train station. Let's listen back to my interview with him from a decade ago. In many others, in Munich Airport, people go just there. You see, to uh, first of all, the hotels are very convenient. Second, they are very good restaurants. And third, you know, is, um, you really get the feeling I am in Munich, although you are a couple of miles out of it, you see. Or, or I am in Zurich, you see, although you are a couple of miles. Uh, and particularly on Sunday, you see, when the shops and many other facilities are closed in the city, then people go uh, to the airport. I mean, it's, uh, and this will happen in your case without any doubt. Calatrava is the architect behind the Oculus in New York City, the Milwaukee Art Museum. Uh, But his relationship with Denver soured, and while you were able to keep aspects of his design for the hotel and train station, Denver never really got a signature Calatrava bridge. What, if anything, did you learn from that episode? 
Santiago is just a brilliant architect, and I think we did benefit from his early concepts. And that hotel looks like, from the outside, it looks like the image that he had imagined for us. And it, we were very sad when he decided to leave the project. Um, he had his reasons, but I do think we benefited. And I actually think some of the things we, he said early on, even about this terminal, were incorporated later into the Great Hall. So you have the Calatrava relationship, which had its turbulence. Uh, You have the turbulent nature of the Great Hall project, uh, which involved also terminating a relationship. Are these in any way a tarnish on your time here or your reputation? So I'm going to start by saying we did not fire Calatrava. Calatrava left the project on his own accord. The Great Hall partners, we terminated. We terminated because they could not deliver what they had promised they could deliver, and we decided to get rid of them quickly. I don't see it a tarnish at all. Look, there's no question that sometimes, you know, we stumble along the way, but we have kept our vision, we have kept on track, and we are delivering an amazing project right now. How much thought do you give, Kim Day, to air travel's impact on climate change? And does it worry you? So I am really encouraged by the focus that we're seeing in the airlines on biofuel. In fact, I don't know if you know this, but United, uh, Scott Kirby, who is their CEO, he's been outspoken about how they need to get to uh, zero emissions, and they have invested in some biofuel. We're actually hoping that we can get a biofuel firm or two, manufacturing firm or processing, I guess is what you call it, here on airport, because This entire industry is focused on becoming greener. You know, we redesigned the airspace with the FAA a few years ago. Yes, that saved the airlines money, but it also saved fuel burn, and that made for a greener sky. And we're working on, you know, mobility issues, trying to get more people on that train that we talked about earlier and out of their cars. So, you know, just as a citizen... We all care about climate change, and I I am really proud of all the sustainability efforts that DEN has done and all of the vision they have for doing more in the future. Is it tough to be a woman in the airport business? Do you encounter sexism, and and if so, what does it look like? Uh, Let's start with, is it tough being a woman? Yes. Is it tough being a woman in the airline industry? Even more so. Look, this is a white male-dominated industry. I think there was one uh, woman CEO of an airline in the world that was Air France. Go into a meeting. I am often the only woman there other than my team. I have some good women on my team. Uh, But yeah, it's hard. And in some ways, maybe it is an advantage because less is expected of you, perhaps, by the men. But I also think the women who succeed in this industry have had to work harder, and they are an amazingly smart and talented bunch. So I have met some wonderful women along the way who deal with the same prejudices that I've dealt with. It sounds like what you've dealt with is an assumption that you're somehow less than, less capable, less engaged. Just to expound on that for me. Yeah, I think this is what women and minorities face everywhere. There is just an assumption that you are not as smart, that your voice is not needed, uh, and you have to speak up. And uh, that requires you to be a little more practiced, a little more studied, doing your homework, and come in with a, a position and a statement and smart things to add. Your last day as CEO of DIA is July 16th. You had considered retiring last year after a breast cancer diagnosis. 
you stayed on because of the pandemic and all that there was to help navigate through. Uh, how has that diagnosis changed you? Well, anyone who goes through something like that has just, you know, done a deep internal uh, look, you know, what are my priorities? And I think the main thing I came out with, look, I've been a vegetarian for 30 years. I'm a healthy person, but the biggest anti-cancer or pro-cancer thing in my life was stress. Uh, so there's no question that I, one of the reasons I was going to leave last year is to reduce the stress in my life. This is a 24-7, 365 a day a year job. We can hear your phone sometimes going off in the background as proof that it's always on. It is. So I need to get stress out of my life. And that's one of my goals. But also, you know, I'm going to be 67 next month. I've been at this airport 13 years, half of its life. It's time for this airport to have new leadership. It's time for me to have a new phase of life and spend a little time rediscovering who I am and what I want to do next. How's your health and will you stay in Denver? I am healthy. I'm happy to say I'm on the other side of things. And this is my real hair, which is, <laughs> which is a delight. Um, no, I am actually planning to leave Denver. I bought a house in Southern California some years ago that I've never lived in. I've always leased it out. So I plan to head there later this year. As you leave, what's your hope for DIA? All of the best. This airport, Federico Pena and the other visionaries who designed and Wellington Webb, who built this airport, had an amazing vision for a future. My job for the last 13 years has been the steward of this asset and to leave this still in line with the long-term vision and hopefully better than I found it. And I think I have. And I want to see this airport continue to grow. I want to see the development happen on the land. I want to see more international flights. I want to see passengers smile and enjoy this airport, as I hope to do as a passenger coming through in the future. Yeah, I had that picture. There's going to be a day when you fly either to or through Denver. You're no longer its CEO. And that's going to be a moment, isn't it? It is. Remember, I was I ran LAX for a while. And the first time I flew in there while, after I left, it was almost surreal. I actually wanted to pick up the phone and complain about things and realize, yeah, that's not my job anymore. <laughs> so uh, hopefully there'll be nothing to complain about here. But it also is a... It's a wonderful experience to being able to be in a facility as a passenger and just enjoy some of the great things that you've done. Kim Day is on the white courtesy phone. <laughs> I hope. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much, Ryan. Kim Day has led Denver International Airport for 13 years. She retires July 16th. Let's get some additional perspective on Phil Washington, the mayor's choice to be the next CEO of DIA. CPR's transportation reporter Nathaniel Miner is here. Hi, Nathaniel. Hey, Avery. What should we know about Washington? Phil Washington grew up on the south side of Chicago, um, grew up in public housing, uh, went on to a 20-plus year career in the Army, and actually achieved the highest enlisted rank possible, command sergeant major. And then uh, got into the public transit business. He led RTD through the building of many of their rail lines, got a reputation for managing big construction projects well. And then uh, LA Metro scooped him up for about five years. That's one of the biggest transit agencies in the country. So that was a big deal. And then he ran the Biden transportation transition team last year. Uh, he would be the first black CEO of DIA. Um, he's known Mayor Hancock for years. And uh, his confirmation uh, needs to go through the city council first, um, that we're in the middle of that process right now. 
So it sounds like a lot of transportation experience, but does he have any experience running an airport? He does not, no. Uh, But he's talked about past experience that could apply here, like running big organizations with thousands of people, managing large construction projects like he did at RTD, and like the ones at DIA right now. So here's what uh, Washington told a city council committee just last week. Uh, I, I like to think that I learn something every day, something new every day. And so nothing will change here. And by that, he means like he wants to continue this lifetime learning process that he's doing and anticipates that'll keep happening at the airport. It's also worth noting that Hancock says he is more than happy with Washington's level of experience. As we heard in Ryan's discussion with outgoing CEO Kim Day, there are a number of construction projects going on at DIA right now. What's Washington's take? Yeah, so the airport is adding more than three dozen new gates and it's revamping the Great Hall. But the airport had to dial back some of the security checkpoint pieces of that Great Hall expansion to keep it under budget. Washington now says he wants to restore that and keep expanding gates at the same time. I guess my take on these kind of things is to go big uh, in terms of the relocation of security and planning for uh, the next 30 years or so. We don't know how the airport would pay for that necessarily or how much it would cost, but Washington says he would look into it and bring it back to the city council and the mayor to deliberate. Point here, he just wants to keep expanding. Why does Washington think the airport needs to keep expanding? Well, because it can. Uh, DIA is way out east of the city. It has this space to expand. Other airports in the U.S. and especially on the West Coast, they just can't do it. Think LAX. Washington says DIA should seize that opportunity. The question in my mind is how do we expand and can we expand quick enough? And that includes a runway. That includes additional gates as well. You know, another thing we should ask about, an L.A. Metro employee alleged corruption at that agency while Washington ran it. Did that give anyone pause on Denver City Council to have him take over DIA? No, not at least in the committee he appeared in front of last week. Uh, Here's Councilman Kevin Flynn. He was a longtime transportation reporter at the Rocky Mountain News before he was elected to city council. Uh, As a recovering journalist of uh, 35 years, I know there's an old saying that where there's smoke, there's fire. But I learned over those 35 years that sometimes it's just somebody throwing smoke bombs. What is next for Washington? Well, the city council committee unanimously advanced his confirmation last week. He will appear in front of the full council later this month. Thank you for joining us, Nathaniel. You're so welcome. CPR's transportation reporter, Nathaniel Miner. When we come back, Colorado's role in renewable energy. We'll get insight from the nation's energy secretary. She visited Denver recently. I'm Avery Lill. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. How can policing change to do less harm to people of color? I'm Ryan Warner from Colorado Matters, encouraging you to listen to the podcast Systemic with host Joe Erickson. Meet people determined to change the status quo from inside and out. Joe brings a wealth of experience reporting on criminal justice and racial justice. Her stories take you beyond the headlines and into people's heads. Come to CPR.org systemic or hear it anywhere you listen. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Avery Lill. 
The U.S. Secretary of Energy, Jennifer Granholm, visited Colorado last week. She leads the agency that's charged with energy, environmental, and nuclear security. She's made it clear that a transition to clean energy is one of her top priorities. Secretary Granholm, welcome to the show. Glad to be on. Thank you so much. Infrastructure spending has been center stage lately. The House recently passed a $760 billion transportation and water bill. The Senate previously passed a $579 billion bipartisan deal. We don't know yet if those are going to go through a reconciliation process, but both of those are quite a bit smaller than the American Jobs Plan, which you've been championing as you travel the U.S. Before we get into the nitty gritty of infrastructure proposals, why is infrastructure investment so important to you? It sets us up as a nation to compete in the 21st century globally. It is, we have just completely dropped the ball on so much. In Colorado, you've got 460 bridges that are in poor condition. I mean, it's just so basic. But if you add in the infrastructure that's associated with clean energy, like the transmission grid, which is part of the bipartisan infrastructure framework. And you know, we, we, you've seen these events. We know that the climate is producing more and more extreme weather events. We know we're going to have to add capacity to the grid. We know we have to add resiliency to the grid. We know we have to protect it from cyber hacking. So the bottom line is investment in infrastructure is investment in America. Lots of things at stake here. The Biden administration has drawn criticism from activists who say it's not doing enough to fight climate change or move to clean energy, especially since the bipartisan transportation deal reduces or cuts funding for a number of clean energy projects. How do you answer them? Well, the the first uh, agreement, the bipartisan infrastructure framework, invests an historic amount in the transmission grid and an historic amount in projects that would reduce CO2 emissions, projects like carbon capture that would take CO2 emissions from from fossil fuels. The next step, and and it's an historic uh, investment in EV, electric vehicle charging infrastructure, $15 billion. So the next step is to invest in the renewable energies. And that's going to come from the the next um, piece of negotiation, which is the reconciliation bill. And that is going to be very robust. So the bottom line is the president's American jobs plan with these two pieces are going is going to be largely met. And in in some cases, there may even be more. So it's it's really an exciting time to be in this administration that really recognizes the importance of investing now because we can't continue to see these extreme weather events overtake us. And we spend 90 billion dollars last year just on cleaning up after these extreme weather events. So we've got to get a handle on it right now. Many Republicans say that this plan for a transition to clean energy is actually too expensive. So on the other side of things, how do you respond to them? Well, if you don't, what is the alternative? Doing nothing? That is not acceptable. And honestly, it's not acceptable to the majority of Republicans, of Republican citizens and Republican members of Congress who are not, you know, I, I, my, my department reports to the Senate Energy Committee and a lot of, and most of the members of the Energy Committee are popular, are, come from fossil fuel states and they aren't climate deniers. They know that we've got to invest in the technology that reduces CO2 emissions. So that's why you, you saw this bipartisan framework that did exactly that. So I think there is an emerging consensus, Democrats, independents and Republicans, that we've got to do something because the status quo is not acceptable. 
you know, you mentioned electric vehicle funding at $15 billion. That's historic, and that's in the bipartisan deal. But in the American Jobs Plan, it would have been $157 billion, so that's actually 10 times larger. Do you think that there is something with a smaller price tag that could be done to that might be more bipartisan? Let me, let me be clear. The uh, amount that came out of the bipartisan bill was for the charging stations, the EV infrastructure. What was contemplated in the American Jobs Plan is incentives for people to purchase electric vehicles so that the price of purchase is the same as what it would be if you purchased a regular old car that had an internal combustion engine. So point of sale incentives. And that's uh, something that is contemplated in the second step, which is this reconciliation bill that's going to be coming through Congress as well. And it sounds like you're still optimistic about getting that. I am. This reconciliation, it would bypass Republican opposition. But the Energy Act of 2020, it got bipartisan support. It extended solar and wind credits and investment in clean energy technologies. What are you willing to do to build bipartisan support for something like the American Jobs Plan? Well, and that's what's so interesting is that because the Energy Act of 2020 was one was thoroughly bipartisan. It was overwhelmingly bipartisan. So a lot of the senators who come from fossil fuel states also come from states that have enormous solar and wind resources like like Texas. I mean, here in Colorado, you've got uh, you've got enormous resources in natural gas, but you also have enormous wind and solar resources. There are more people right now working in um, clean energy in Colorado, 62,000 than in all other uh, energy combined. So this is, as the president says, when he hears climate change, he thinks jobs, that is a bipartisan uh, consensus. The bottom line is that we are doubling down on the jobs piece of this because honestly, the globe is demanding products that reduce greenhouse gas emissions. There will be a $23 trillion market for these products that reduce greenhouse gas emissions and that generate clean energy by 2030. And the question is, is America going to get in the game? Are we going to be generating that energy, but also building those products and the supply chains? And Democrats and Republicans realize that we have let too much of our manufacturing backbone go to other countries, our economic adversaries, and we've got to get that back. And so, so much of what is contemplated here that does have bipartisan support is investment in those supply chains that will make us lead again rather than just watching these jobs go overseas. Let's talk about Colorado specifically. What's unique about its role developing renewable energy? Yeah, I mean, obviously, Colorado, first of all, has a fantastic national laboratory, which falls under the Department of Energy, the National Renewable Energy Laboratory, that is really providing the modeling and the framework for so much of the planning that is going on across the country in where the best resources for clean energy are, how you can use the transmission grid to get it to the right places, et cetera. But Colorado is, has got amazing resources, both wind and solar, that we can use. And Colorado also has the ability to be a pilot state for managing carbon, managing CO2. So you've just uh, had a bill passed and signed into law by your governor, which which gets puts a goal out there of reducing CO2 emissions by 80% by 2050. That is, it's only the second state that has done that. That is a really important statement about where your priorities are and how important the technology to manage and reduce carbon emissions is going to be here. So Colorado is leading in many ways. I was at a solar farm in uh, Colorado and um, saw the ability for community solar to be powering all of these uh, thousands of homes. You can be pilots in that. So you are a place where ideas are happening, where 
people are taking those ideas and making businesses out of them and where people are being employed. So you're talking a lot about jobs in other sectors and innovation. People are worried that jobs might go away in oil and gas and may not be replaced with high paying jobs in the clean energy sector, or they might force people to relocate. How do you ensure an equitable transition? It's such a great question. It's such an important question. It is, um, we cannot leave people behind. I mean, especially workers who in the fossil fuel industry who have powered this nation for 100 years, we've got to make sure that they are powering our nation for the next 100 years. And this is why at the Department of Energy, you know, we call ourselves the solutions department because we have, we are uh, investing, and this is really what this bipartisan uh, infrastructure framework did, investing in the technologies that remove carbon emissions from fossil fuels. For example, uh, a process called carbon capture and storage. You remove it at the point that it's being emitted uh, into the air. You take it instead and you put it underground. And that kind of technology, which works and which other countries also want to deploy, we could be developing it here, attaching its coal uh, power plants. We could be attaching it to to natural gas plants, we want to make sure that we remove CO2 emissions through technology so that those workers are not left behind. And I will say this, even as um, the market is um, moving away from coal, we've all seen that, those workers can be put to work in managing the, the technologies associated with removing carbon, but also in helping us to lay the pipelines for the next generation of clean energy, clean power through hydrogen, for example, or through moving that CO2 underground, or they can be helping us to build the solar panels, or they can be helping us to build the wind turbines or installing them or maintaining them. This clean energy economy creates all kinds of jobs for all kinds of people in all pockets of America. And we want to make sure those communities in particular, the Biden administration, has a real focus on the fossil fuel communities that we don't want to leave them behind. You know, Colorado passed a bipartisan bill in the most recent legislative session to move toward a more regionally interconnected power grid with a new Colorado Electric Transmission Authority and a requirement that makes all transmission utilities in the state join an organized wholesale market by 2030. What effect do you think more regionally interconnected power could have on the pace of renewable energy development? Yeah, I mean, first of all, across the country, Connecting to these regional uh, transmission operators is really important because it allows for Colorado, for example, to generate clean energy and send it outside of Colorado if you're not using it, if you've got an oversupply, or to allow the rest of the country to send power to you if, for whatever reason, you're feeling if there's a pinch, if there is some kind of uh, crisis where you need additional power. So we've seen, for example, the example of Texas, which has its own independent grid, which is not connected to the national grid. We couldn't send power to them when they had, you know, a few months ago when it was frozen. And so connecting, you know, the region with other states makes you more resilient and allows you to receive clean energy and send it out. A draw here for renewable energy as well as security. This trip, it is about clean energy and innovation, but also you are traveling, and that's something that's been really limited over the last year and a half. So another goal with this trip is to encourage people to get vaccinated. Why is that important in your role as Secretary of Energy? Oh, because we want 
all these people out here getting jobs in clean energy and we want people to see that our economy is back. And, and part of the reason why you're seeing such a rebound in the economy is because the Biden administration has done such a great job with getting vaccines in arms. We're going to have by 4th of July, I think 70 percent of people who are 27 years old and older will have had one shot, which is which is great, but we want more. And so we want to really encourage people that if you really want to be free, then get a shot, get vaccinated so that you really can come out and participate. We're at the Colorado Rockies game, which is full, you know, they're selling every seat now, which is fantastic. Get vaccinated. So this issue of worry is behind you. That's really the message we want to be sending. And hopefully we'll be reducing barriers for folks getting vaccines as well. Yes. Yes. Thank you so much for talking with me, Secretary Granholm. You bet. Thanks so much for having me on. Appreciate it. Jennifer Granholm is the U.S. Secretary of Energy. We spoke during her visit to Denver last week. President Biden is vowing to increase pay and resources for federal firefighters as Colorado and other western states enter the peak months of the wildfire season. Climate change is making fire seasons longer and more intense, but the federal firefighting force faces staffing shortages and low morale. CPR's climate and environment editor Joe Wirtz has the story. Homeowner Dave Schulman and a friend are fixing a gate in front of his ranch near the town of Eagle in western Colorado. We're doing everything we can to keep this place as safe as possible. This is one of the last homes you can reach before the road is blocked off by emergency vehicles. A wildfire is burning through brush, grass, and aspen trees on national forest land a few miles behind the ranch. Of course, this was unwelcomed and surprising. Hundreds of federal wildland firefighters are working to contain the wildfire nearby. Most of these kinds of firefighters are temporary employees who only work through the summer. Their starting pay is around $13 per hour, much lower than they'd make at a local, state, or private fire department. And none of them are actually considered firefighters on paper. They're forestry or range technicians. It's just a a convenient bureaucratic sidestep of just, you know, labeling us as forestry technicians so that they don't have to uh, to give us the same benefits. That's Chris Ives. He's a squad leader for a hotshot crew in the San Juan National Forest near Durango in southwestern Colorado. This is his 10th season with the Forest Service. It took him six years to get a permanent job. Despite not carrying the label and pay of a firefighter, Ives estimates he spends 80% of his time fighting fires or on duties directly related to firefighting. CPR News spoke to a half dozen U.S. Forest Service employees like Ives who fight some of the country's largest, most dangerous fires. They say low pay and other labor issues have led to the staffing shortages in Colorado and other wildfire-prone states like California, Oregon, and Washington. Ives says those gaps have to be filled by existing forestry workers who are feeling exhausted and overwhelmed. Not being able to take time off unless it's a, a funeral or a wedding And just having that every year, it gets a little more and more tiring and taxing on your psyche. President Biden called federal firefighter pay ridiculously low. At a meeting with Western state governors Wednesday, he said the U.S. is late to the game and must act fast. We're remembering the horrific scenes from last year. Orange skies that look like end of days, smoke and ash that made the air dangerous to breathe. More than 10 million acres burned billions of dollars in economic damage. 
Biden is moving to bump firefighter pay using bonuses and incentives to boost it to at least $15 an hour while he works with lawmakers on a long-term fix. Administration officials say they will also allow seasonal employees to work longer, and they'll train and equip more federal workers and military personnel to allow for surge capacity when needed. Forest Service officials declined an interview request, but a spokesperson acknowledged that uncompetitive federal wages have led to high turnover and low recruitment. Federal firefighters say low pay is hard to deal with because it's so expensive to live in fire-prone areas. Think tourist spots in resort towns and national forests with million-dollar homes. Yeah, I'd say maybe like a, a quarter of our crew are living out of the back of their trucks or, you know, camping out. All of the firefighters CPR spoke to said similar things. Most had spent time living in their cars or trucks. One woman working in southwestern Colorado says she lives in an insulated shed because it's the only shelter she can afford. Stephen Pine is a former wildland firefighter. He now teaches courses on fire and fire history at Arizona State University. He says the U.S. Forest Service has long struggled with staffing. Because it was a seasonal occupation. So they didn't want to hire people full-time. They only wanted them when they needed them. But the wildfire season is now nearly year-long. Pine says it's like the federal government is fighting 2021 fires with a 1951 staffing mindset. You've got people who are working for relatively low wages, seasonal, uh, very little career advancement for many of them. That sounds like a lot of unhappy workers. David Schulman has lived in this forested area near Vail and Eagle for 20 years. His experience could be a sign of the increased need for firefighters during an era of climate change. None of this is new for me, but having your house under imminent threat to where you could see the flames, that's something I can do without. Most of the firefighters battling the blazes in the national forest behind Schulman's ranch would make more money if they took an entry-level job with the local fire department here in Eagle, a town of just 6,500 people. If they left for the fire department in Denver, most would more than double their pay. Joe Wirtz, CPR News. For many artists, their work is how they make sense of the world, even senseless acts, like the mass shooting at a grocery store in Boulder in March. CPR's Monica Castillo shares the story of people helping others and themselves look for hope. Artists can't always explain what moves them to work, but many can cite the incident or emotion that inspires them to start painting or sculpting, dancing or writing, without a plan of what will come of their feelings. It's just what they do as artists. That unknown feeling visited artist Michael Grab in March. The shooting happened on Monday, and I decided to go out Tuesday. Even though the weather wasn't that great, I just decided to go out there. I, I didn't really have a set goal in mind when I went out. I just went out and put myself in the space and just kind of let the process happen. Crab says he was moved to create something out of his grief. His medium? Stone balancing. It just was kind of this natural, necessary thing to do, was to make these 10 structures, which I've always called boulderites here in Boulder Creek. Just channeling my art in that, kind of that therapeutic, meditative way, to, almost to lift that heavy feeling from myself to begin with. Grab's art was never meant to be a permanent memorial. Part of his process as a land artist is that he returns his building materials to where he found them. It's more of like a transient art form. I mean, I think that's also part of the power and the impact of it is just this transience, which really kind of points to the nature of existence, really. And I think 
just helps in the processing of all this. Artist Carla Funderburg was miles from Boulder when she heard news about the shooting. The Los Angeles-based artist was getting ready to set up her own artistic memorial at the Museum of Boulder in remembrance of those who had died from COVID-19. She found comfort in the art of paper folding and in what the paper cranes she makes symbolize, wishes for peace or recovery, and as a point of transition. I felt so helpless. I felt so alone. And I, I just wanted to start to release some of this anxiety, this fear, this separation. I had a journal that I was writing in and I just ripped a page, made it into a square and started folding. So my first crane was out of, you know, lined loose leaf paper. Funderburk made many more paper cranes and invited others to make them with her so they could collectively grieve. She's collected cranes, over 130,000, from people from nine different countries and 46 of the United States. I had put a box outside my door. People would walk by and drop cranes in. I also, at that point, had a little station that you could fold a crane or you could take paper, fold cranes, and bring them back to my gallery. It just so happened that the idea of making paper cranes also came to Meredith Bacchus' daughter, Lita, after visiting the memorial outside the King Supers, where the shooting took place. And my daughter just kind of was like, I'm going to start folding. <laughs> and it just seemed like the right move. Like Funderburg, the Bacchus family collected donated paper cranes from neighbors and placed them at the makeshift memorial by the grocery store. We had people that were also feeling the same way, kind of helpless and hopeless, and we don't know what to do. And, you know, in two days, we had a thousand cranes folded, and it was very sweet. As spring storms rolled in, the Museum of Boulder stepped up to preserve the cranes and a number of other items that would not survive snow. That's when Funderburk learned of the local cranes from Museum of Boulder director Lori Preston. All the cranes were placed together at the museum in a show of unity and solidarity. So we hung it in the middle of the area that she had, you know, partitioned off for the Memorial Crane Project in the installation. You can walk all the way in, and as you get closer and closer to the center, once you get to the center, the 10 strands with the names are there. Hopefully, the, my memorial is holding space and embracing those lives. Boulder's Paper Crane Memorial represents how tragedies, large and small, exist side by side in our lives. It's a reminder that even if you're not a professional artist, you can still use art to jot down feelings, find comfort in creation, and discover something beautiful in processing grief. I'm Monica Castillo, CPR News. Finally today, Rachel Bayman has been in love with Colorado since summer camp as a kid. The Nashville singer-songwriter went to Rocky Mountain Fiddle Camp in Divide, Colorado. It's where she learned the fiddle, then banjo, then guitar. It all comes full circle when she returns to camp this summer as a teacher. She's also going on tour and has a new album. For a musician who was out of work this past year, it all gives Bayman a bit of optimism and a little trepidation. It feels like a little whiplash. Like, I feel like I've forgotten how I kind of juggled everything. So it's not necessarily what's happening that makes you feel so unsettled. It's just all of the change. Whether it's change for the good, change for the bad, change in general is just hard to navigate. So trying to get used to that. One of those changes is that Bayman's younger sister, Becca, decided to relocate to Colorado last summer and pursue a Ph.D. at CU Boulder. 
Rachel deals with Becca's move in her new song, When You Bloom. I wrote this song kind of trying to convince her not to move, actually, because um, I was sort of saying, like, let's do life together. I don't want to miss those really important chapters. And she's my little sister. And I was like, I want to be there for them. Now we're going without me. Why are you going so soon? We've got so much ground to cover. imagining that drive between Nashville and Colorado and everything that you think about and reflect on in, in your relationships during those long road trips. You know, I'm really happy for it and I think it is the place for her. I just smile and shake hands Nod my head until we've both had enough Now we're going without me Nashville folk artist Rachel Bayman her new album, Cycles, was released in June. She'll teach this summer at Rocky Mountain Fiddle Camp and performs in Colorado the week of August 17th, starting in Fort Collins. And that's our show today, with thanks to the Colorado Matters family. Carl Bielek. Ali Butner. Anthony Cotton. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. And I'm Avery Lill. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. 15.